Hello, and welcome to another Profiles of Endurance. I'm Father Scott Vanderveer. Earlier this summer, as a reaction to the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis, a bunch of local Christians in the Ravina area where I serve as pastor came together from a number of denominations to do a prayer march from the front of our church, St. Patrick's in Ravina, to the village office building. In doing that, I got to meet 81-year-old Nell Stokes, a member of Riverview Baptist Church nearby here in Queemans. And the shirt that she was wearing as she marched got my attention. It said, if you are tired, keep going. If you are scared, keep going. If you are hungry, keep going. If you want to taste freedom, keep going. It's a quote by Harriet Tubman, and I started a conversation with her, and she told me about her life as a member of the early civil rights movement in Montgomery, Alabama, where she was born and raised. She came to Albany many, many years ago, but this strong activist, mother, poet, playwright, professional, and proud woman of color shares with us about what her life has been like over these past 81 years and about what lessons she's learned and has to teach about the reality of systemic racism in our society. Listen to this tender conversation as two Christians and children of God try to figure out together how we can help make our country a safer and better place for all. Father Scott, it's just such a pleasure um, that you've asked me to share with you today. Thank you. Um, my uh, my childhood was was basically like any other. Uh, well, back then we were called Negroes, um, but any other black child growing up in the South, um, we knew from the time we could remember who we were that we were treated differently um, than um, other people, white people, I'll say that, because that's what it was all about uh, then, and still mm. that's what it's all about. Mm. Uh, but, you know, I had, um, you know, my, my mom and my dad, and I had a sister. She was six years older than I am. So um, it was actually sort of like I was an only child. My dad was... Um, a deacon in a Baptist church, actually River River Riverside Baptist Church was the name of the <laughs> church that he he was a deacon in Montgomery, Alabama, and so I went to church from a young, a very young age, and um, I went. It was an all day all day kind of thing with my dad because he was in charge of some things at the church, and it was interesting to me because. Um, you know, I got to be there and, and visit with the other people and play with the other children and, and, and do various things um, in the church, participate on different programs, Easter programs, Christmas programs, things like that. Mm. But um, um, growing up, you know, my I went to my elementary school, um, was a three-room schoolhouse, and um, it had two classes in each each room. Um, and it was interesting because my dad was a laborer. He worked 
different places, you know, earning whatever money he could earn. But he also, they, my parents had moved up from uh, Clow, Alabama, which is Barbara County. Mm. And um, they came up to the city and they brought their chickens and um, my, my dad had sort of a farm at our house. He, uh, we had chickens and he had a hog and, hmm. a, and a goat and um, some ducks. And uh, I used to, my job was to collect the eggs because my dad used to sell eggs to the neighbors. And he would also, um, you know, when he killed a, 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 a pig, he would share the meat with the neighbors. But then um, he didn't know that he, were, he, he wasn't supposed to have animals ah. in the city. And so after a while, I don't know how long, I was, I was a little girl. I, I think maybe I was about three or four years old, something like that. Mm. And he, he, had to, he had to get rid of his animals. And I had developed a real uh, relationship with the with the with Billy the goat. Oh, yeah. <laughs> How sad. And, and so he got rid of he could get rid of all the other animals, you know, like giving them to people or you know, uh, what, however I don't know how he got rid of them. I was a little kid. I just knew he had to do that. And so we got down to the last two animals and was one was a pig and the other one was Billy, the goat. Mm. And so my dad had to kill them. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> he had some friends come over to help him kill the goats and, and, and dress them or do whatever they do with them. And so, of course, when they were going to have dinner one day and they were serving uh, goat meat, I didn't eat it because I just refused to partake of my friend. Oh, that is hard to hear. It's almost like something out of the Bible. It makes me think about the the story of the prophet um, Nathan talking to King David about taking the little ewe lamb from the from the man who that was the only companion he had. That makes me feel, I, I feel that in my heart right now. <laughs> Ooh. Yeah, it's a, it's, I think about it often. Is how I I just I was so close to that that goat because he was my only playmate. Oh. And um, I, I just couldn't, I couldn't do that. But anyway, my dad had to sell all of, all of, get rid of all of his livestock. And of course, there were, there were no more chickens. We lived in a, in a, in a, in a house that had, it was built high off the ground. And I remember that I used to, my hiding place was underneath the house next to the chimney. Mm. Uh, whenever, whenever there was trouble or anything like that, that's where I would go. I would run under, underneath there and hide. But my mother did um, uh, a washing for the, the the white folk who lived in our neighborhood. So our backyard buttressed this white woman's backyard that my mother used to work for. Wow. And um, our, I could when she would take me with her there, and this woman had two children, a boy and a girl. Um, his, uh, her name was, the little girl's name was Connie, and, and um, the little boy was Billy, so I imagine his name was William. They called him Billy. Hmm. But anyway, um, we um, we played together every day since I was, you know, I was around three, 
two or three years old. I remember playing with this little, these two kids. They were my playmates. All Aww. the people I ever played with. I never got to go out outside of the gate to play with anybody else. But Billy and Connie were my very best friends. Hmm. Or so I thought. Um, and um, we grew up and got to be six years old and it was time to go to school. And so... Uh, that first day, well, um, in Montgomery at the time, there was no kindergarten. You mm. started uh, school in first grade. Mm. And when I um, um, I was all dressed to go to school, and I was walking to my school, and I looked and I saw Connie and Billy standing over at the corner waiting for their school bus. So I went running over to say hi to my friends. And as I was running over and I was about to say, hi, Connie, and she looked at me and said, what you talking to me for a little nigga? No. Get out of my face. Yes, she did. I was six years old. And it, it feels like it was just yesterday that it happened because that's how it's done. I was so shocked and amazed and hurt. I started crying and the other little black kids started laughing at me and calling me stupid for even saying anything to her. But I didn't know any better. Because no. actually I had never been outside of my yard to, to play with anybody else or to visit with anybody else. They were my friends, I thought. Yes. And so that was, yeah, that was my first um, uh, realization that, you know, um, they played with me just because I was the only person there, but they didn't like me. And I was different. And, um, yeah, that was my introduction into the, the hatred of people of me just because the color of my skin. I'm curious if over the years of thinking about it, you've gotten to the bottom of where it came from. Did it, do you think that throughout the time you were playing, the kids were not really liking you, but they just had no other options? Or what, do, you, do you think there was a conversation at one point where an adult said to them, all right, playtime is over, it's time for school, don't talk to those people anymore? Um, I'm, I don't know. I have no idea because in my heart, they were my best and dearest friends, oh. especially especially Connie, the little girl. You know, we, we played dolls, we played house, we played church, we played all those games. Uh, we, you know, we made up stuff to, you know, entertain ourselves. And then when she called me the N-word, um, it, it did something to my heart. Oh. It, it messed with my feelings. It, it was unbelievable. I, it's really indescribable even now. And, and I'm 81. So all those years ago. Um, that incident still affects me tremendously. Thank you for sharing it. It is a sacred, it is a very painful and sacred story to share because I think it has the power for some of us who've never, you know, there's a lot of people listening right now who've been betrayed, but never like that. Never, never like that. That, that is, everything about it is so hard. Tell me, in your reflecting about it, do you suppose, you know, one of the things that, that Dr. King taught us is that oppression 
also dishonors and disfigures the oppressor, not just the oppressed. Do you suppose she also remembers that grotesquely? Did she do, as she was doing that, Could do you sense that she felt um, that she was dehumanizing herself by doing that? Um, well, you know, I didn't, I didn't have that kind of, um, I didn't have those kinds of skills. Sure, <laughs> I, sure. I, I was six, I was six years old. And what I saw in her eyes, uh, as she looked at me was disdain and hate. Oh. That's what I saw. And, and it, it amazed me that, you know, almost yesterday, like two days ago, we were playing in the backyard, and two days later, she's looking at me with hate in her eyes, mm. calling me a nigga, mm. you know? And so that stayed with me, and mm. still with me, you know, mm-hmm. uh, as I said. I don't know what she was thinking, but I know I was deeply hurt, oh. and I, I cried and cried, and then, you know, the other kids who were walking had to go to the school that I went with with me didn't make it any better because they made fun of me the whole day, you know, calling me stupid, talking to that white girl. You're so dumb. Oh. You know, you're not, you're not supposed to talk to those people when you're outside. Oh. It's like, I didn't know that. And so a lot of things throughout life I've learned uh, through trial and error, and that would be one of the things that has happened. Mm. I, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I, I bow before the, uh, the immensity of the sadness in the story. It's just such a hard story. It was the bus boycott that is so famous that, um, that Rosa Parks is so famously a part of that there was such an amazing, uh, outpouring of understanding in a new way for Americans at that time. That didn't come until, you know, a, a decade later, really, right? Because you were a six-year-old right. girl then. You were a 16-year-old young right. woman. Um, what were the years in between that and the bus boycott like? Uh, more more of the same or a very, a very separate life from white folks? Correct. Everything was separate. In the community where I lived, um, everything was separate. It was, um, you know, people talk about the black community now. And it's not really a black community because every nationality lives in the communities now. Right. When I was a little girl, our area where I lived uh, was actually a black community. Everything in my community was run by black people. They owned the grocery store, um, the doctor's office, the schools. Um, the taxi cab company, the mm. drugstore, everything was owned by black people. Mm. Um, and when we, when we shopped or wherever we went, um, it was a black person, um, in that, in that place. And so, um, I, we lived in, uh, about maybe five or six blocks from downtown Montgomery, mm. but but I never had to go there because everything we needed was right in our own community and black people 
ran the restaurants, different things like that. Yeah. Mm. So um, that's how it was in the neighborhood where I lived. And there were different, you know, everybody in my neighborhood wasn't poor. Right. You know, my fam- my family were poor, but there were people who owned big houses with little white picket fences and all kinds of beautiful things, you know, flowers and everything. You walked the neighborhood, you saw all that. But in the portion where I lived was basically, you know, I, you know, I guess there were poor people. I don't know. I know we were. We um, didn't have much of, of anything. And my parents, neither of my parents could read or write, but they always found work to do and they always took care of us. There were, there were no services for us when we were kids. No services. Was, no services. We Whatever we got, we had to work for or our families would share with us. And I do remember, however, the time when um, there were rationing of food, rationing of everything. So every family member had a little, a little booklet um, that told you how much sugar you could buy at the store, uh, how much flour, uh, how much, and you had to give a, a little, a little page out of that booklet to the the person at the store in order to get your portion. Wow. I remember that. That's a World War Two time memory, right? Yeah, yeah, around there. Yeah. So yeah, I remember the rationing books, but um, you know there were no social services or anything like that for for my family. You know, uh, my my dad struggled for everything that we had, and as I said, we were we were considered um, the poor folk in the neighborhood. And to lose that pig and that goat to be told there's a there's a city ordinance that doesn't allow you to have this that that made it even harder correct, correct. Uh, it, and usually you know in our in our uh, my my dad raised all of our food so the vegetables and everything we had he had a garden we had um um our yard was was pretty big and it was all fenced in with chicken wire fence and um, um, he raised, he grew almost everything that we ate. And then he had the livestock. But then after that, he had to go out and find find work at, in other places. Mm. And neither of my parents could read or write either. So um, by the time I was six years old, I already knew how to read when I went to, went to school. Mm. Because um, when my mother would be cleaning our doing laundry or whatever for the white lady because she did not have her name. My mother called her the white lady. You know, oh. Come on, get ready. Come on, get ready. We got to go to the white lady's house. Wow. And um, uh, she would be reading um, stories to her children, uh, and, and that's how I learned to read. She would let me listen. Oh. And so by the time I got to school, I knew how to read. And then by that time, I knew how to help my parents with their paperwork and stuff like that as well. Oh, wow. You know, I got I to gotta just say, though, you, here your father was uh, with the limitation of not being able to read or write. But he was a deacon in the church and provided yes, for his family. What nobility. What nobility. Yes. yes. And the other thing, when I when I about my dad is when um we we went to we went to church we went to sunday school and then you had to get trained in order to be, become a member 
you had to have training, you had to learn Bible verses and things like that. And my dad taught me the Lord's Prayer, the 23rd Psalm, mm-hmm. the Beatitudes. He mm-hmm. taught me those. I can't, for the life of me, uh, know how he knew them when he could not read or write his name. Unbelievable. But he, he knew them. So I think it was his memory was so good that he, if somebody, if he heard it, he could remember it. Yes. And and he was, he was, uh, he had great ingenuity and he could do um, things that you wouldn't imagine that a person that couldn't read could do. Amazing. So, Amazing. So yeah. <laughs> oh, tell me, in your town, in Montgomery, how did you know where the black neighborhood ended and the white neighborhood began? How was that... How was that dividing line marked? Well, I don't, I don't really, I don't, I can't answer that question specifically because I never really uh, left my neighborhood. Mm. I, I was always there. I knew there were, and we, we didn't have a car to drive around anywhere, but I knew that there were, there were a lot of people, family members, especially who worked in the suburbs out, um, you know, and, and the white folks' houses cleaning and all that stuff. But mm. I, I never knew how they got there. I never went anywhere. Just, I was just a part of my neighborhood. Now I could go downtown. Um, uh, I could walk downtown. It was that close, downtown Montgomery. But mm. um, to go to other neighborhoods, I don't know how they were set up. I know uh, some of my family members lived on the other side of town, which was a different kind of black neighborhood. Mm. But um, uh, uh, um, I don't know how it was set up and how the boundaries were um given during that time you know some things you just know in your in your you know know by looking and listening and but you don't really have the understanding of how it actually works that's right that's right and i think that's true i think that's one of the things that's so hard for all of us to understand what we mean when we say systemic racism is the fish can't describe the water that she's swimming in you know, yeah. how do you describe this, this, the way things work when they're how things work? You don't, you can't say, oh, this, you, you, you can't, it's so hard to describe the dysfunction of a system when you know nothing else. Mm. And that is, and, yeah. And that's one of the reasons I think that all people should study their own history. Mm. Uh, for 401 years, African Americans have been, um, discriminated against and systemic racism was built into the system that's why white folks think that there's something innately wrong with black folk because they've been taught that they were born into that Mm. and when you're born into something no matter what happens no matter what somebody else says it seems like you're going to always believe that thing that you were born into you know there were laws against us learning how to read Mm. and so but people don't know that yes and so they say oh they gotta build them pull themselves up by their bootstraps well what happens if you don't have boots or what happens if you're standing on my bootstraps you know uh the privilege the privilege that's given to white America far outweigh anything that's ever happened for us. We always had to struggle because when they brought us here, 
it was against anything that God expected to happen to us, I'm sure. I don't know the mind of God, but I just imagine he didn't expect that black folks would be chained in the bottom of chained together in the bottom of a boat and brought to another country and 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 sold as cattle mm-hmm. um, as slaves. How could God's children, how could some of God's children do that to others of God's children in the same family? How? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's my point exactly. You know, when people say, you know, you know, they're a Christian, but you're not living like a Christian. You're Mm. not doing the Christian thing that you ought to do. How can you hate me so when you say you love God? You never saw him. That's right. You see me every day. I'm in the image of God. Now, those are holy words. Those are holy words. And they're so true. They're so true. I, you know, every, the thing you saying, it is 1619 was the year that slaves were first brought to the United States from Africa. Jamestown, Virginia. And that is, you know, we don't, up until recently, that year was unknown to much of America, but we always talked about 1620, Plymouth Rock, you know, and people who have any connection to the Mayflower and 1620 who are white have a lot of pride over, I'm an early American. You know, I have, look at all the dignity that I have because I came here in a ship, you know, with early settlers and, um, not only we're not even beginning to talk about what that means for native Americans, you know, whose land this was, you know, before people from Europe came and thought it belonged only to Europeans. But, but how about the fact that people who consider themselves noble because of 1620 are ignoring 1619. Correct. Oh yeah. There's so much um, to learn. uh, And there's so much to, grieve about grieve. in America. We've always, America has always been a violent place mm. for black people. Mm. And um, people, uh, it seems like folk don't want to a- acknowledge that. Mm. People don't want to acknowledge our actual history and they can tell black people what they ought to do. Yes. Well, we, 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 we can't ought to do something that we were not allowed to do mm. because of the laws and rules and regulations that were made to uh, made against us. You know, you know, you keep know us in a particular place. You're bringing up something so important, I think, for people. For a lot of white folks say, and this is a very convincing argument, I think, in some ways, how am I responsible for this? I don't say the N-word. I I like black people. I have black friends, and I've never owned slaves. Why am I responsible for this? And I think you're helping us draw the line between slavery ended, but then there were laws that made it illegal to teach reading or writing to a black student. So you're drawing the line there. It it doesn't end with the Civil War. 
it doesn't end there because then there was there's a direct line in the system between between that and then you know I think a lot of people I think um, and I don't want to speak for everybody but I think a lot of white people myself included a lot of my life have heard the word Jim Crow laws but we don't really know what that means. We know that it, it was bad and it was wrong, but it doesn't help us to draw the line between the slave era and the uh, the era today that we live in. Correct. Yes. So help me, obviously when you were a teenager, you did not know as much about life or about justice as you do now. But where were you in life when the bus boycott began? Tell me about what that young Nell was like. How did she see the world? What was what was your your situation at that time? Um, well, I, at that time, I didn't see the world. I saw Montgomery, Alabama, hmm. and i I know uh, I knew the system of riding in the back of the bus, and it's the sign that said Negro. Uh, in the bus, if the seat there was filled and a white person got on the bus, you had to get up mm. from your section so they could sit down. Mm. So even the rules that they made for riding the bus didn't matter if another white person got on the bus. Mm. And so... Um, I didn't ride the bus that often. I have to say that right up front because I didn't, we couldn't afford from the five cents that I needed to get on the bus. Mm. And whatever the school that I went to uh, was in walking distance. And that's the only place I ever went was to school and to church and maybe to the store for my, my parents. And um, so, um, Moving to the back of the bus didn't affect me physically, mm. but it affected me mentally because I saw what was happening to my people, and it was not right. If you already have your seat, and it, and the sign above your seat says Negro, and that's what you're you identified as at the at that time, and a white person got on the bus, and the driver. Uh, said nigga get up and let that person sit down Ooh. That's, that's not fair no it's not following the rules that person should have had to stand up in the aisle the way you had to stand up in the aisle when you got up from your seat so that he could sit down separate so, yeah, separate but equal kind of, was a lie separate but equal was a lie it was absolutely yeah it was always separate and unequal Yes. All of my life, it's been separate and unequal. Mm. All of my life as a as a teenager and a young adult in Montgomery, Alabama. Mm. And so that made me angry. But what do you do with that anger? I, nothing. Because mm. who, who am I, right? So mm. I just kept walking to school and doing whatever. And then on December 1st, 1955, Rosa Parks said, the heck with this. I'm not getting up. I don't care what you say. Uh, I don't know what she said, but she didn't get up. No. So I often say that she sat down to stand up. Mm. 
Yes. And I, I just appreciated that so much. I was so happy. Mm. And so on my way home from school that afternoon, um, some some of the kids who lived in my community, because um, we, we had to walk through uh, Alabama State College campus to get to get home, um, the buses were parked there. So we put our pennies together and we, we uh, bought some eggs and then we threw them at the bus. Mm. And that just felt uh, freeing. Uh, gave a little bit of relief because we we got some some steam out. Some... Like, yeah, we threw we threw eggs at the bus. Yeah. Well, we only had enough money to get one dozen, so yeah. Oh, but that's <laughs> physical. <laughs> two, two, three kids and twelve eggs. Like you said, after all those images were in your eyes, coming through your eyes of injustice, and you had nothing you could do with the anger, you finally had one little thing you could do. Right. Yes. I throw my egg and hit the, the glass on the bus and then watch it just ooze down. Yes. Yeah, that made me feel good. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so after that, you know... Um, uh, the bus boycott started. Well, actually, it it only was supposed to be one day. Mm. And so um, after it kept going, after the one day was over and they kept going, I walked down to um, the, the taxi stand was owned by this man named Eddie Posey. And the, the taxi stand, one of his taxi stands, they were using it as a headquarters to get rides to people who needed to get from from here to there. And so I went down there um, just to, just curious teenager to see what was going on and, and what could I do. Mm. And I and I ended up, you know, volunteering there for a, a bit of time, maybe two or three months, just hanging out and, you know, picking up trash and sweeping up the floor and emptying the garbage and stuff like that. No big, nothing big, but things that needed to be done. Mm. Well, at the time, I didn't realize that it would be um, as big as it was, and it would be something that I could tell people about at my age now and say how proud I was mm. to have done that little, little bitty task. Mm. And in that in that uh, time, so a few times while I was there, um, uh, Dr. King and Rosa Parks and, and uh, Ralph Abernathy, I just say Reverend Ralph, Ralph Abernathy, mm. they would come in just to see how things were going on, see how things were going and what, what the uh, volunteers, the, the adult volunteers needed in order to make things work smoothly well um i got to see them i didn't realize that it that that uh the bus boycott would have such an impact on our society otherwise i would have asked for an autograph yes they <laughs> but yeah. i never thought of that i didn't even know what an autograph was at the time i was just there 
you know, as a, a curious teenager, just helping out and just being nosy, really. Mm. You want to hear the real truth. I just wanted to know what was going on and how this was going to work and 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 what what I could do to help. Mm. And the, you know, the little thing I did to help was was actually a blessing to me. Something that I'm really really proud of. Mm. And that so I got to see them. I didn't get to speak to them or anything like that. You know, because back then. Uh, kids, you didn't you didn't run up to grown folk and and talk or say anything. You just stayed in stayed out of the way. Mm. But yeah, I I I'm so amazed at at uh, at your closeness to the greatness of that and how greatness before before it becomes recognized is is very ordinary. It's just doing what has to be done. Absolutely. Mm, Absolutely. It's amazing. So, mm-hmm. What you wound up moving from Montgomery, Alabama, which was a very big deal, right? I mean, you were an Alabama girl who never, you never left. When was the first time you left? Um, it was in October 1963. You'd never left Alabama until that time? I never left my community until that time. I didn't even go, um, well, let me take that back, because I have family that lived in Clio, Alabama, which is about 46 miles south of Montgomery, and I would go down there. Uh, I got to go down there when I was a very little girl, mm. I think uh, six, seven years old, to stay with some of my kinfolk for the summer, during the summer months while school was out. So I did get to go there, and then when my niece... Uh, was born. She was uh, she was um, um, immature. immature. Uh, that's not the right word. Pre, uh, premature baby. Premature, not mm. not immature. Well, of course, she was immature. She was a baby. <laughs> she was very <laughs> immature. <laughs> <laughs> she was pre- premature. She weighed less than three pounds. Yes. And at that time, when she was born, there were no hospitals in Montgomery, Alabama, for black people. Mm. And so she had to be taken to Tuskegee, Alabama, to the hospital there. When you so say, when you say there were, I'm sorry for interrupting, but when you say there were no services for your family, we're talking even hospitals. Even hospitals. Even hospitals. I mean, I think for even our listeners, hospitals. come on now. I think for a lot, I mean, I, I am, just when you think you know. What it what it's I didn't know that I didn't know that there I mean I would have it was already bad enough to think that you couldn't all go to the same hospital as everybody else in the community but there wasn't even a hospital. No, oh. there was no hospital for women to have their babies in Montgomery, Alabama, when my niece was born. Oh, and so um, my mother knew somebody with a car. I don't know. She went and got someone. And um, um, the midwife and my mother and the driver and my sister and I went to Tuskegee with this baby. And they let me hold the baby on a pillow all the way there. And that was like 46 miles or so. Mm. And so I got to hold my, she was so little. Uh, she and she looked so fragile, and you couldn't do anything with her. It's like touch her; you think she'd break or something. She was so tiny. 
Mm. She was le- she was less than three pounds, and uh, so we drove her to Tuskegee, and she stayed there maybe five or six months before. But yeah, there were no hospitals in um, Montgomery, Alabama, for women to birth their babies. Oh, terrible. And ac- and actually, one time my mother was in the hospital. She had she had surgery. And um, they had a little shack out back to bring the people to, um, the black people to once they got through with their surgery. So they had a room in the hospital where they could do the surgery. And then after they finished, they would roll them out the door to that little shack in the back for the recovery. Mm. And uh, my mother got pneumonia. And almost died out there in that little shack. Um, so yeah, it was more than anything that you would ever think that would happen. And that's why I say mm. that everyone needs to read our history. It's there. It's not on Instagram. It's not on Facebook. Mm. It's in books, in libraries that talks about the history of America and how black people were treated. And I think if more more people avail themselves to that information, they would have a different idea of what it's like being black in America. It's one of the most difficult ways to live your life Mm. is being black in America. And we do it every day. And we've done it for 401 years. And um, under great duress. Have you found that many people thought that it used to be hard, but now it wasn't? Do you find that a lot of people say, well, now I don't understand what you mean. I mean, what you're describing from Alabama in the, in the 40s is different than it is today. Isn't it normal today? Um, no one's ever said that to me. No, they never have. Because I used to cuss back in 1970. I stopped cussing in 1972. Ah. So if somebody said that to me right now, I would have to cuss them out. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Yes, you would. <laughs> yes, you would. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's unbelievable the things that, you know, we have to go through as black Americans. And the way the, the way I got to um, back to that question you asked about how I got to Albany, New York, um, my husband, uh, my first husband, worked at Gunter Air Force Base in Montgomery, Alabama, mm. and in that year, uh, I think in maybe May or June or something like that, he got laid off from his job. Mm. So in um, in July, his his mother and his aunt came to visit. They lived in Albany, New York. They had left there to come up here to work as housekeepers for um, people. I don't know what people, but mm. they they were li- they were living help, mm. living maids, the both of them. And so they came down to visit that summer. And he had just lost his job, and so they said to him. So why don't you come back home with us? We, you know, you there's plenty of jobs up in Albany, and so he left and came back um, uh, to Albany, 
came, came back, came to Albany with his, um, with his aunt and his mother. And they got here, I think they said that weekend, Friday night or early Saturday morning. And Monday morning, he had a job. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> At the Frangella Mushroom Company in, 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 in Queens, New York. Right here where, where we're, we're talking from today. Saint, I'm, I'm at St. Patrick's in Ravina as we speak. So how about that? He was yeah. brought here. Now, what, what this is the summer. So if you're going to move from Alabama to upstate New York, summer's the time to do it because it fools you into thinking you might be able to survive the weather change. No, I didn't come in the summer. He came in the summer. He needed to find a job first, and then he needed to find a place for us to live. We mm. had um, four kids at the time. Wow. So when they when they brought um, when they when they came, they brought one of our sons with them. And so when I came, I would only have three kids, not four, to bring by myself. You know about hard work now. <laughs> you just. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. So then we um we um. He got a job that that following Monday, as I said, and then I came October 1963. So it was like July. He came. Three months later, I came. I never left uh, Montgomery except for those two pe- uh, two places, two times I went, you know, to Tuskegee and to Clio, Alabama, and then um, I had to pack up and figure out a way to bring our things and bring our three children to Albany, New York, Mm. uh, on the Greyhound bus by myself. Was your heart, was your heart breaking? Um, actually my heart didn't break until I got here. Mm. Because I thought I was coming somewhere. Mm. That yeah. you thought, and what did you, where did you think you were coming to for, uh, a better life? Um, I, yeah, I thought, you know, everything would be better. The housing, the people, you know, all that stuff. And then uh, it was such a, it was such a difficult trip um, to, uh, from Montgomery uh, uh, to Albany on, on the Greyhound bus with three kids, one oh. of whom kept getting uh, sick. No. Because of the 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 all uh, the riding. Oh. I had no idea wh- how far we had to go. I had no idea how long it would take. I had no idea how to plan for bringing three children with me oh. on the bus. But um, you know, I got here, and that's when I broke down. Mm. Because we we came to the bus station and I saw that area down there on Broadway where the Greyhound bus station used to be, and I was just very, 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 very disappointed. Oh, I you know I thought it was would be you know a, a nice place, you know, all built up and awesome looking, and yeah, I don't even know what I expected. I just know I was coming uh, to a different place uh, with my husband whom I loved, and my children. And we would have 
a better life, a different life, because he would he had a job. So I was very naive in my thinking because I'd never been anywhere and done anything. So, you know. Were your parents still <laughs> living at that time? Um. Yes. Did my parents Lee... were still living, but my parents had uh, uh, separated. Uh, and my father was in one place, and my mother was sick. She was in the hospital, so she was um, with one of her sisters. Did leaving them did that did that hurt you? Yeah, yeah, it did. Leaving my family and leaving a, a place that I was familiar with that uh, was very very difficult. Mm. But you know, you put an H on your chest and you handle it. Wow! There we are. There we are. And so, you know, that's what I did. H on your chest and handle it. Now, let me ask you this. 63, big year. You came in October. All of us know what happened uh, in November of that year. So there's the shock of our our country entering chaos. Our president is assassinated. Did, mm-hmm. did you, and earlier that summer was the famous... I have a dream speech on the mall on Washington with Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, a man that you had seen in person and participated in the movement of. Um, Were you too busy to pay attention because you had four children? I wasn't too busy to pay attention. I I watched a whole bunch of it on television. I thought his uh, his, uh, speech was just extraordinary and... um, but because because I knew him and I had been in his presence, I knew it would be extraordinary. Mm. And um, but he's had a lot more spectacular. He's had more spectacular speeches. Speeches, you know, like the letter from the Birmingham jail, which was just as inspiring as the "I Have a Dream" speech. I know people focus on that I have a dream speech because of the I have a dream part. Yes. Yes. But when you, you when you look at all the other a lot of the other speeches that he's written and and um, uh, you will find that he was just amazing anyway in his his eloquence and his oratory. Um, he um, was sent by God to do what he did. You just named it. I'm just sure of that. You you know, you just named, you're exactly right. And I just think when we hear in the Bible about Jeremiah and Isaiah, and we read about these prophets that spoke Ezekiel, and we say John the Baptist, and we say, oh my goodness, Wow, what it would be like to to be alive for a time where there's a, a a person of God, a man or a woman of God, speaking so bravely, and you know, even when it's something that people don't want to hear, or, or you know, telling us God has a plan and this is not it, and we need to change our lives, and we don't need to wonder what that would be like because we we know we've seen it in Dr. King. That's what it's like. That's what a prophet is like. That's what that's he's as much a prophet as the Bible prophets were. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I believe it. Me too. I do. So so tell me, 63, you heard the speech. 
then President Kennedy gets killed. Did you see President Kennedy as a friend to uh, black people? Did you think of him as somebody who was was moving in a good direction? Or was did that not occur to you as, as a quality he had? No, it didn't really occur to me because you know I was I was really busy during that time, so I wasn't as involved mentally with what was going on. Yeah, because at, you know I had uh, my children to take care of and and a whole bunch of other things to take care of, and so um, I wasn't um, as active. Um, I, you know, I listened to all that. I I. Uh, thought it was something that was was good for for us for black people at the time that, that he was the kind of president that he was mm. but uh, I wasn't that involved in the overall conception of him as a president because of my own life journey in the things that I was doing at the time understandably understandably. Now, how about how about we we go ahead just a couple of years back in your home state? There was something uh, famous and heartbreaking that happened. Uh, there was this famous march that was was meant to bring people from Selma to Montgomery in 1965, and it was it was met with a a such an aggressive racist counter uh, force. Um, that was sanctioned by the state that, you know, it was the, it was the state police of Alabama that beat people that were in it, that were nonviolently protesting and walking on their own streets. They paid taxes for, um, it's called bloody Sunday. Uh, it is, it's one of those things that if people aren't familiar with this, they really should, like you said, you've got to look up this history. Um, what, you're at, you're now living in New York, but you grew up in Alabama. Did you hear about it immediately? And what was your reaction to that? Oh yeah, I had I had uh, family members. I have family members because they're still alive mm. who marched across that bridge in Selma uh, during that time. They didn't get fortunately they didn't get hurt, but um, I, I was actually stunned by the reaction of the police. And and those people who are in charge, um, but I was not surprised because of the history of violence against our people. Mm. Um, being attacked by the police, the state police, or whatever police is nothing new. Was nothing new mm. for me, and it happened all the time. And but I'm just so happy that. And by then, we had television. Yes. And not just the people in Alabama knew it, or in Selma, Alabama, could witnesses, witness it. People around the world saw what was happening. And this um, was a march to demand voting rights. It, it's just it just amazes me how some people still think we're three fourths of a person. Oh, you know, still this day, two thousand twenty, 
some people still think that and that we are different because we're black. It's, and that's not the case. You got it. You know, what's so interesting is we're living in 2020 when we're in an election year and there's a lot of talk about safe and fair elections. And that, the, you know, what if, what if there, you know, we, we lived through the year 2000 where, you know, there was a election errors and irregularities in Florida and everybody knows about those things. But what maybe we're not drawing the connection to is there has, black people have never felt that their right to vote has been protected or promoted. It is constantly under attack. Absolutely. That Absolutely. is, and that's, I do believe, I mean, I can only speak for myself as a person growing up, in my case, in Rochester, New York, but I don't believe that I understood that as a white person growing up. I really thought that there was not an active desire to suppress the vote of black people. I now know that that's not true. There's an active mm -hmm. desire on the part of many to suppress the votes of black people. Yeah, and I don't understand why. I just don't understand the thinking in the minds of those who would not want everybody to vote. Yes. It amazes me still. Why would we, we not? A, right. Yes. I yeah. mean, that's what makes America strong. We're the proudest democracy in the world. Why would we not believe in the right to one vote for every American? Correct. Oh, my. Correct. One, it's, it, it's because it's been ingrained in the minds of white America that black folk are different. Mm. And that's just not the case in any sense of the word. We're all the same. We all want the same thing for ourselves and for our families and for our lives. And there's enough here in America for everyone. Yeah. So why is it so important to keep black people from gaining the things that's needed for each person to survive? Yes. But in spite of it all, we still rise. Mm. How? How? How do you still rise? How do you have energy to still rise? Because of God's grace mm. and his desire for us to live a good and faithful life. Mm. I think that our, our desire, our need, our will comes from our ancestors. It's mm. instilled in, in us. It's part of our DNA. Oh. We, we have to do what we do in order to defeat Satan. Yes. Yes. It's, you know, I remember Maya Angelou speaking so movingly um, to young black Americans. She, I remember hearing her one time saying, do you know who you are? Do you know what your ancestors did to give you life? Do you know that they, they laid spoon fashion in the filthy hatches of slave ships? They survived for you because they dreamed that you would not have to do that. They survived. They, they endured lashes and being sold and separated and not being allowed to marry, not being allowed, being violated in every way. 
They did that so that you would have life, so that you could have freedom, so you could. And I would hear her say that, and I would think, "Oh my gosh, it the nobility of just being born a child of God is enough." But being born black means that your ancestors are people of incredible strength and nobility. Absolutely, unbelievable. And, and they've laid the groundwork for us. And we have to continue to fight for our freedom and for our dignity. And we have to stand up to bullies and just be what God intended us to be. Mm. And that's awesome. It's the word I always say. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, I asked you when we started our conversation today, I asked how you're doing, and you said awesome. <laughs> Which I love. Yep. That's, that's I always faith. say awesome, and I'm awesome because God is awesome, and he made me to be all that he wants me to be, so, you know, awesome is it? Uh, it's been your faith that has gotten you through. It's been Absolutely. your faith. Absolutely. It's been your faith. Absolutely. Oh. Tell me, what, do you ever get mad at God for, because it's so hard? Do you ever... Do you ever say to God, Father, please don't don't let another generation go through more of this? Yeah, all the time. You know, um, I get mad at God and I get mad at people. Mm. I have a lot of anger. I have a lot of anger inside me. Mm-hmm. And um, but I try to use, um, I try to uh, form my anger and use it in a productive manner by doing things that's going to benefit um, my people. Yes. Um, I know when I worked for the, I worked for the Albany YWCA Mm. back in the seventies. And um, I, while there, um, the one imperative of the YWCA was, to eliminate racism wherever it exists and by any means necessary. Mm. And I thought that that was um, an interesting one imperative for a white organization. Yes. Um, because when, when I went to work there in, in, in the 70s, uh, I, I got my job because I was black. Because they had gotten... Uh, um, a director from the national board mm. of the YWCA that said that the Albany YWCA had to hire a person of color in their administration. Uh, they were going to lose some kind of funding or something like that. Mm. And so I went there um, um, looking for a job and didn't really want to get a job because I wanted to go uh, continue college. I had just started um, college and I wanted to continue going, but the Department of Social Services, because by that time my husband had left and I had to get assistance mm. from social services in order to uh, t- help to take care of my children. Yes. I worked, but my work didn't pay enough. And so I had, so they said I had to go to, um, to get a different job. I got laid off from one job. Mm. And then I, I, I signed up at Hudson Valley Community College and I got accepted and I was going to college. They said, social services said I, ha- I had to quit college and go work. And so I went oh. 
to the Y for this interview. Someone told me they were hiring. I went there and um, I did everything that was um, you're not supposed to do at an at an at a interview because I didn't really want to get hired. <laughs> but the woman hired me anyway, and and she probably hired me because I was the first black person that walked in the door asking for that job that they had to give to a black person. Mm. And so um, I went to work for the Y, and I tell pe- I tell people now, and I told people then I got my job at the Y because I was black. But I won't keep it because I'm black. I'll keep it because I'm excellent and I'm doing good work. Oh, yes. (laughs) And so while there, I I had, I was in charge of, I was the director of the the, uh, teen teen group. And so when I read that, that one imperative, I thought, oh my God, what are they doing to eliminate racism? And then one uh, one time in the middle of the night, I woke up with this idea of having a famous Black American essay contest because then people would learn about Black history and about Black people who had made um, excellent um, had done excellent things for our history, for our country. Yes, and 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 it would help people to get rid of the racism. Mm. And that's my thinking. Mm. Well. Um, so I, I, in 1980, we had our first contest, and, and we did it in February, and we had 28 winners to represent the 28 days of February, mm. and, and um, I was able to uh, negotiate with the three TV stations that we had at that time, and also um, um, some radio stations to have moments in black history. Mm. on TV mm. and and that started in 1980 and if you ever see those moments in black history on TV as you watch right now it's still going on oh. I started that oh, that's wonderful um, uh, the YWCA closed after 15 years uh, of the essay contest mm. um, for lack of funding Mm. In Albany, in Albany, and the Delta Sigma Theta sorority. Two years later, picked the contest up, and they just changed the name to Creative Expressions Contest. Ah. But they kept the majority of the rules and regulations that was set down back in 1979, 1980. Mm. They added some great stuff. And there's still moments in black history on TV right now. And in their publication, they always give me credit for being one of the people that started it. Uh, so I'm very, very proud of that. So that's sort of what I do with, with some of my anger. Yes. try to bring things to bear so that people can see if they want to see, because some people don't want to see, they don't want to know. They just want to be mean and ugly and nasty and kill us. And, and some, I don't know if this, if you've been able to make sense out of this, but some of those people now are Christians. Yeah. How, how, how? How? That's what they say they are, and I don't understand. How could you be a Christian and, and act like this? 
I, yeah, you don't know any more than I do. Why? You don't get it either. No, I don't get it. I really don't get it. And it's, well, maybe I do get it a little bit. Mm. It's because they don't know the history of America towards black Americans. Yes. They don't know the history. They don't want to know. They'd rather think that we are other than human. Yes. And shoot us every chance they get. You know, Nell, what one thing we haven't talked about is you actually, because you've, uh, you've lived so many chapters of your life, one of the chapters of your life involved you being Catholic for a significant <laughs> chunk of your life, which is wonderful. And I bring that up because there's a Catholic teaching that Baptists don't share, but I think it's interesting to just have a little moment with it. Because uh, I'm not I'm not promoting Catholic over Baptist in any way at all. But I think what you just said is interesting. The the Christians that don't know the history, you know, what's interesting is a lot of Catholics always thought of our idea of purgatory as a very bad thing, and it's been taught to us. It's been retaught. No, no, no. Purgatory is a good thing. Purgatory is our human way of trying to put into words something that just has to be a part of our entrance into heaven, which is the citizens of heaven just love all the time and they live in the, in the joy and the complete fulfillment of God. And so if you die, not ready to be a citizen of heaven, there needs to be some sort of a process to help you be ready for heaven. So you don't feel like you're out of, out of sorts. So you don't, you don't live in a neighborhood where nobody else talks to you in heaven because you don't get it. And so one of the things that I pray and know in my heart, I know is a part of that homegoing process when we die is we, we lose that ignorance. We lose the ignorance that could cause us to believe that, um, you can be a Christian and hate anybody else. Mm. You know, I just, Mm. I just gotta believe because there's people that are going to get hit by a bus today. And they're going to die with racist beliefs. And I believe God wants them in heaven too. But they can't go there until they drop it. You know, they got to empty their pockets, you know. And if they're carrying race if, or if they're carrying ignorance about how our country was founded or about how violent it's been for black people for 401 years, that, um, that they've got, they won't, they won't understand heaven if they don't drop that and and enter with with new awareness. So I I just think it's interesting because I'm sure when you were being um when you were practicing the Catholic faith for many years, um you heard that term purgatory and many Catholics today mm-hmm. still they don't they don't understand it or they don't like it and and I understand people people have a really they, people need to be able to follow their conscience and and understand mm-hmm. but I think it's important to take a moment like what you just said and say that's one of the reasons why the Catholic Church teaches us about purgatory because it helps us to understand how God can work with us even through our ignorance and our darkness and our hate mm-hmm. you know God can God is not undone by anything even even the limits of our goodness because right. we're all children of God. That we didn't come here without an invitation from God. None of us. That's right. Absolutely. Ugh. Tell and me. He made us in, our, in His own image. Amen. Amen. Black. So when you're looking at me, you're looking in the face of God. So you need to be nice to me. Oh, when you look at me, you are looking into the face of God. So you need to be nice to me. Amen. Yeah. God made us black and white, male and female. 
No yeah, exceptions. No exceptions. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Mm. Tell me, now, you said that channeling your anger is important. One of the things I've learned about you is that you are both a poet and a playwright. Is Tell me about some of your, your work in poetry and in, and in theater. Is, is that one of the ways that you channel the things that you've experienced? Yes, it is. Uh, and, you know, writing uh, helps me to get through the day sometimes. If I put it on paper, then it's no longer in my brain running around in there with all the other stuff that's in there. Mm. And so I can just release that and let it go. But but um, you asked the question about me being Catholic once upon a time. Yes. And and the reason had nothing to do with, do with religion or Christianity. It had to do with forty five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> because that's how long a Catholic mass tends to be. Absolutely, I was a little girl. <laughs> I was a little girl. I told you, and my and my father was a deacon at the Baptist church, and so every day we were the first ones there and the last ones to leave, and so that meant we were there all day. <laughs> and so when I was in seventh, when I was going into seventh grade, I my community school was this Catholic school, Nazareth Catholic Mission. Mm. And so when you went to that school, you had to be trained in Catholicism. Mm. And so I had my training, and then uh, occasionally, certain times, you know, I'd have to ask my parents if I could go to Mass, because there were certain things in order to go to that school, you had to go to Mass that, you know, you had to go to Mass for. Mm. And so when I learned that Mass was 45 minutes, to an hour, but I had to focus on that 45 minutes. I was so excited. Sounds so good to me. Home. Yeah, <laughs> sounds good. Oh, you go for 45 minutes, you're done. You got the rest of the day. You can go do what you need to do or what you want to do. <laughs> so so I, I asked my parents. I tried to get my parents to let me become Catholic, mm. and they said no. Mm. But I didn't forget. So when I got grown, when I became an adult, I uh, switched to Catholicism and wow. I joined the Catholic Church. Wow. So when I came to Albany, I was Catholic. Isn't that something? And that's when I met um, a lot of great people mm. in the Catholic Church. Mm. Yeah, Father Young, Father Trimley, Bishop Hubbard. These are giants yeah. in the in the local Catholic Church. Yes, they are. Correct. Yeah. Correct. And and when we're still friends. Oh. I love them. But um I got um yeah, so something happened at I was a member at Saint Anne's. My children went to Saint Anne's school and um something happened at Saint Anne's. Uh, with um, that made me think about where I ought to be, and so then I I went back to the Baptist Church. And that and you're at home in the Baptist Church now. I am. Yeah, I am. It's yeah. it's wonderful. Yeah. And we met uh, at a at a joint Baptist Catholic Ecumenical event. 
marking the death of George Floyd and praying for, for peace and healing and an end to racism in our country. And so it's how wonderful. And when I met you and you said, oh, I used to be Catholic, I thought, holy cow, this woman has a million chapters in her book. Yeah, I do. Uh, I'm every woman. I've been doing a whole bunch of things, for sure. You really have. I love it. I love it. I love it. My, oh, my. Talk to me um, about what, I I, I guess this is a two-part question. I want to ask the two parts so that we we can stay grounded in hope. We're in a a very dangerous time now. It feels like the violence in our country is escalating everywhere. Um, and it is, uh, we now are seeing, uh, a lot of people who never saw it before are seeing the violence that is present against black people in the system. What, what, what do you see that we need to do right now? What's your biggest worry for our nation right now? And what's your biggest hope? Those two things together. It's a dangerous time. Mm. Yeah. It's a very dangerous time, and I pray a lot. Mm. I have um, my own personal devotion every morning, and I have um, certain things that I read, and then I read the Bible, and then I pray, and I ask God um, for all kinds of things. First, I thank him for all kinds of things. And then, um, I think that we need to be more loving towards ourselves and towards each other. Mm. And we need to, we have two ears and one mouth for a reason. We need to listen more and talk less. Mm. And we need to think about what we're going to say before we say it. Because mm. words matter and words hurt. Mm-hmm. Words can escalate a situation and words can control or de-escalate a situation. Mm. So I think in terms of the violence, before people... Uh, get riled up and run out in the street to hurt someone. They need to think about what they're doing and how it's going to affect the masses. Yes. Don't be led by other people's anger. Ooh. And other people's hate. Don't be led by other people's anger and other people's hate. So important. And I think one of the biggest things uh, some of us may need to do now um, is turn off the television Mm. and turn to God. Mm. Mm -hmm. The less stuff you have you allow to go inside your brain, the better off you're going to be. Yes. Yes. We we all need to take time for quiet time. Mm Mm-hmm. And just to think and meditate on the goodness of the Lord. Yes. And know that he is good and his mercy endureth forever. And that we're here. We're all here for a reason. Mm. 
And the reason cannot be to hate and shoot and kill people. Clearly, our maker would not bring us here for that. Absolutely. Clearly. And I don't often talk this way, but you know the enemy would like that. Right. And the enemy would love to get us all confused and feel self-righteous and get us feeling real religious as we participate in that. You know, mm-hmm. the enemy can trick us into even getting our, well, it's, maybe that goes back to what we talked about. How could Christians participate in something like that? Because mm-hmm. they're, they're, we need to turn our TV off and sit mm-hmm. with the Lord because we're, right. let, we're getting confused. And a lot of people don't think they're wise enough to think for themselves. Mm. They think they have to have somebody tell them everything. That's why they have the TV on all day. Mm. No. Turn the TV off. Listen to the wisdom of God. Think in your own mind what is right and good and then do it Mm. or not. Mm -hmm. It might be that you just need to sit down and shut up. Mm. That might be what you need to do. Yes. Or keep it to yourself. Everybody doesn't need to know what's on your mind. Yes. Yes. Um, You know, some things are just for yourself. And so, um, you know, it's like when I, when I think about, um, you know, we talk in terms of the violence, but then we are in a a two or three pandemics right now. We're Mm. in the coronavirus pandemic. And we need to defeat that. Mm. And the way we defeat that, I think, is to listen to the scientists. Mm. Mm-hmm. And know that they don't even know all the answers because this is a brand new strand of virus. Yes. So they're learning about it every day. Yes. So here we are in the Eight, the ninth month, we've had this virus since January something. Mm. And we've been led in all kinds of directions about what to do. But if everybody would just stop and listen to the scientists mm. and do what the scientists suggest that we do, mm. then I think we would be okay. Yes. And then, yeah. Yeah. Well, and you know, science by nature is humble because it only, it it spends all day long looking at what it doesn't know and trying to bring little strands. That's why God, I mean, I think God really blesses scientists and gave us science as such an important field because science brings us up all day long against the edge of what we know into the mystery of life, which is where a humble person stands. Right. Yeah. So I think there's something humble about we don't know everything, but we find this, this, and this looks like it helps. So we suggest you do that. They are Mm -hmm. saying that humbly and we need to take it humbly. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. You said there's multiple pandemics though. Say more about the other pandemics. Well, it's the the, the racial violence, Mm. the economy, people uh, losing their jobs, all Mm. of that, all of that. Mm. Uh, there are pandemics in in a sense of the way. Mm. 
because, I mean, something can be done about it mm. if we stop and think and try to do the right thing, do what's best for each other and for us, rather yes. than um, be angry and fighting about it all the time. Amen. You know, we are a peculiar people, but we, we all have uh, great thoughts and ideas about how things ought to go. And we just got to stop listening to folk just to be listening to folk. And that will have us going back and forth and not really doing the right things. You know, that sounds so wise and it's simple. The wisest things are often so simple. But you know, I'm thinking as you say that about something that was said about us in the Bible, our people, which is we are a stiff-necked people. And sometimes God needs to like break through the tissue, you know, because mm-hmm. we are, we, uh, we don't change easily. And, um, you know, our, our ancestors, uh, you know, wandered, we were very proud, you know, against our maker, a lot of our history, you know, mm-hmm. and we wanted, we had God lead us through the Red Sea. And then as soon as we get to the other side, we start worshiping a golden calf that we made out of our own jewelry. You know, what the heck is wrong with us? I mean, you know, this is <laughs> this is original sin. This is what original yeah, sin looks like. So you got it. We're so <laughs> finicky and we're so fickle and we're we get so dissatisfied and then turn against our maker who's given us everything and mm-hmm. and turn against the other children that our maker made as if we decide how things work instead of how our maker decides. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> oh. I've got now we're we're starting to run a little short on time so I want to ask you a couple of the uh, important questions and and one of them is and I don't I know that you um you I can't expect you to know everything but I'm curious what your advice would be with all the experience you've had I talk to a lot of people who are feeling hopeless about society right now. It feels so far gone. It feels so everything feels impossible. There continue to be Every day in the news, there's more stories of black Americans being beaten and killed. There are more angry protests. There are more, there's so much that's hard right now. If somebody feels helpless, they feel helpless. Maybe they feel like the election is is not going to be fair either because of mail-in ballots and fake voting or because of the new generation of Jim Crow, stopping people from voting, making it hard. Um, when someone feels helpless, what do you, what do you say is the, is the first step? If somebody says, I just feel like giving up, what would you say to them? Well, if I would say that God would not be pleased if they give up. Mm. And I think that the fact that God continues to wake us up every day, Mm. We need to have a desire to live our best life, Mm. no matter what's going on out in the world. Mm. I would encourage them to be, I would tell them to be encouraged that you're still alive in whatever shape you're in. Mm. And think about the things that you can control. And then go ahead and be God's hands, eyes, ears, feet, and help somebody else in need. Mm -hmm. Put some gratitude. 
in your attitude. Mm. <laughs> and thank God for the provisions he has given you. Mm. And then I say to those people, because a lot of times I get a lot of phone calls uh, from folk I don't know. Mm. Well, I have caller ID on my phone. I can pick it up and look and see if I don't recognize the number, I don't answer. Mm. And I would say to those people who are maybe homebound or whatever, don't answer your phone. Yeah. Let the, let the answer machine pick it up. Mm. Wait to hear the voice. And if you don't recognize the voice, do not answer your phone because people can confuse you. That's right. About whatever people are, you know, they can get you on the phone and, and talk you into anything. So the best thing to do is not to answer the phone. I'm going to spread that word now. You're speaking so wisely. I hadn't thought of that, but you're exactly right. I get phone calls all day long from robots and from mm -hmm. people with an agenda making mm -hmm. all sorts of assumptions about me, maybe because mm -hmm. of where I live or my job or the color of my skin or whatever else they've figured out about me. Mm -hmm. And I've gotten things in the mail that are so confusing. It's there. I get things in the mail sometimes that are from wolves, but they've got sheep fleece all over them. Right. And it's so confusing. You could get a person real good and confused if they, right. but if the, if you didn't ask for that mail and if it's coming, telling you all sorts of stuff, don't, don't spend time with that. That's right. And That's don't right. answer don't, that phone. Yeah. Yeah. Let the, let the answer machine pick up. And if you don't have an answer machine, just let it keep ringing. Eventually they're going to hang up. You're right. Uh, because, um, it's, it's just like that. And, and then the other thing we need to do during this coronavirus era, because we're all alone. I'm alone with myself. I love myself. I like being with me. Mm. I can find all kinds of things to do right here in my home with mm. me. Mm. Um, I'd love to read, and so I read books instead of watching TV. I don't always want somebody talking in my head. Mm. Because as I said, I got a whole lot of folk already in there talking. <laughs> and so <laughs> I have to focus on some of them sometimes. So and then, you know, you need to change your habits. Mm. And it will change your outlook on life. Mm. And then if you really want to do something, you want to get out, contact your favorite community organization and volunteer your service. Yes. There's so many people looking for volunteers. You know, don't complain about stuff um, that you can't change, but work on the things that you can change or that you can help with because helping others make you feel better. It does. Yeah. It does. And then, you know, it's like, um, it's like you don't need to be entertained all the time. That's why I said, you know, turn the TV off. You don't need to be entertained all the time. You can just sit and relax and and there's a whole lot of violence and may mayhem on TV as well. Not just necessarily talk shows, but the, the, the movies and all that stuff that they have on. Sometimes we need to just get that out of our heads and think about God and the things that he's blessed us with and how we can help others and how we can be a blessing to others. Oh, beautiful. Uh, it gives me hope to hear it. I mean, I know that's true because my, my soul vibrates when you say that. My soul tells me that's right. That's right. Yeah. 
You know, I'm glad. we've covered so much ground and it's so beautiful. We're going to have to go in a moment. So I'd like to just ask, is there any anything final words you'd like to say? This doesn't have to be our final conversation by any means, but but is is there anything else you'd like to say to our listeners before we wrap up? Um, well, um, not particularly. I've said so much already. Mm. Um, but of course I have a whole bunch of stuff inside my head and it just comes out sometimes <laughs> but I'm just so grateful for this opportunity um, just to talk about um, uh, endurance mm. and, and how you get through what you get through everybody's different mm. and I think that we need to consider that mm. uh, don't compare don't compare yourselves with other people because mm. God made us each uh, separately and differently and and that's how he wants it and that's how you ought to want it and mm. you know you can't believe everything you hear mm. um, just be grateful and be loving and to yourself as well as others beautiful you know, what you just said there, I'll tell you, you know how sometimes when someone speaks, it's all good, but there's one thing that just jumps right out. And what jumped out for me is that's how God wants it, so it's how you ought to want it. Want what God wants and all shall right. be well. Right. Because God wants the highest good. Yes, he does. Mm. So what I'd like to do, I like to end these conversations by giving the listeners a chance to just sit for a moment with it and just treasure this gift that God has given us for this time together. Listeners, I'd like to just ask you, what are you going to take with you from today's conversation? Are you thinking about that, that white girl, Connie, who may now be an 81-year-old woman if, if she still lives somewhere somewhere in Alabama or in the world? Are you thinking about that moment of betrayal? What did that do to you to hear that story, that shocking story? What are you thinking about when you consider times that you've asked or expected other people to pull themselves up by their bootstraps, failing to notice that they didn't have boots or that someone's standing on the, the strap? What did Nell say today that broke your heart? What did Nell say today that brought you hope? How do you feel a little more prepared to endure after listening to this than you did before you began? Nell Stokes, we owe you such a great thanks. You you really opened us up in big ways. And you know what I'm thinking of as we as we end is the the beautiful beatitude blessed are those who mourn. We it, there is something good about mourning because it's a broken heart that's an open heart and we're now more open to see how God wants to see the world because we we have had our hearts whatever was Whatever was hardened in our hearts is a little is a little more broken open now. So I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. And thank you to all of our listeners. God bless you all. <laughs>